Can you hear mommy? Test, test, test. <laughs> to hear lobster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I do it again? Mm-hmm, test, second. test, test. Do you hear lobster? Let's do that again. Okay, one second. Mommy has to record something, okay? Okay. Okay. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, episode number nine. Hi, you guys. So this is a new week. I took a week off last week because it was Thanksgiving, and we are back, and I am here with my child. Hopefully you're at home. Yeah, we're at home. Today's episode is with Mona, my dear friend, who is, I think, eight and a half months pregnant, nine months pregnant. I can't remember what she said. I think she's 36 weeks. And she is Pete's Doc Talk on Instagram. And I met her a while back. She has a very similar page that I do, except she's a pediatrician and she does educational posts all about, you know, pediatric topics, which is pretty cool. So I interviewed her today and we had a nice long session. We answered a lot of questions that I get in my Q&A boxes that I cannot answer. Lots of questions about newborns, poop, feeding, all of that good stuff. So I am really excited to dive in. Can you say hello? Hello. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where we firmly believe in the power of education when it comes to giving birth. Tune in each week as we dive into pregnancy-related topics, expert interviews, and a variety of birth stories. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now, here's your host, educator, registered nurse, and fellow mom, Liesl Teen. Hi, Mona. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, awesome. Can you just start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your family, where you're from, all of that good stuff? Yeah, so my name is Dr. Mona Amin, and I have been a general pediatrician for now, well, five years, graduated residency four and a half years ago. I practice down in Florida, and I'm actually expecting my first baby in a few weeks, so due actually in a month. Yeah. So very excited to be on this journey, obviously from the pediatrics perspective, now having my own little guy coming into the world in a month is super, super exciting. And we're very excited to see how it goes from the other side. Yeah. And I, I grew up in Southern California, moved around a lot. My med school was in Arizona, rotations were in New York. So I've lived and worked in many different parts of the country, but finally in Florida for the last two and a half years. So don't know where home will finally be, (laughs) but maybe back up north to New York, New Jersey, or Southern California, or stay here, but enjoying every moment. So I'm really enjoying it and happy to be with you today. Yeah, I love it. Awesome. So I met Mona guys on social media. She's been doing, she's done two now takeovers for me when I was doing story takeovers before. And you guys just ate her, uh, like not in a bad way, ate her up (laughs) in a good way. You guys just loved her takeovers because she was so helpful and answered so many great questions. Because I feel like peds, I mean, I can answer some questions like from a mom's perspective, but I have no knowledge, like expertise really in pediatrics. I actually, side note, when I was still an LPN, before I was an RN, I did work in a pediatric office for a short, short time. (laughs) Yeah. But I still feel like I can't take that expertise like really and give someone advice on anything because I just 
yeah, <laughs> everything kind of goes yeah. out the window. But, but yeah, you guys loved her takeover. So I'm really, really happy to have her today. And you are Peds. What is your handle? Peds. Yeah, Doc Peds. Peds. <laughs> Doc Talk. So Peds, and then D O C T A L K. So Peds Doc Talk. And yeah, I, I love sharing all that. And I started the page mainly because I was finding a lot of families in my office were confused about what they were reading online. Yeah, mommy groups, social media. So I'm like, I'm going to start a page that really shares evidence-based information, honest information, how I would want to be spoken to. I really speak in a way that I think mothers and parents understand that they're like, we don't have to speak in medical jargon all the time, but hey, this is why we feel this way. This is why we tell you to do certain things. We're not just telling you to do it just to do it. There's a reason, a method behind the madness. And so I think it's been fun for me the page. And I think I've gotten a lot of good feedback on my page as well and love doing the takeovers with you for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, it's so great because I feel like almost everybody that comes onto this podcast and that interview, it's like, we all have the same mentality. Like I had Michelle, I think she was my last episode that I came on. She's like car seat safety. And she was like, yeah, "Yeah, I just started it just to share like evidence-based kind of stuff. I just want, you know, because people are just getting false information. I just want to like put it out there. And of course, like, where's everybody at? social media, hey, we might as well be on there like educating people. <laughs> so Exactly. So I love it. Awesome. Well, guys, I have taken about 10 questions from her takeovers that she's done. And we're just going to kind of go in order. These are... I kind of stuck with ones that are more baby kind of related, newborn, you know, infant baby kind of related. So yeah, let's just go ahead and jump right into these questions. So the first one is... When is the best time to even start looking for a pediatrician? What are some questions that I should ask? How does that whole process work? (laughs) So yeah, I think that's a great way to start. The best time to find one is as early as possible, but second trimester, early third. You can wait till the end of your third, but speaking from personal experience and how uncomfortable it gets at the at the end of the third, it's better to make all those decisions before baby can come, obviously, into the world. So second trimester is a good time. And the best way, in my opinion, I actually posted this on my page recently, but the best way to find a pediatrician is number one is word of mouth. I think when you have a friend or coworker or family member who you trust and also who you look to you know, that you guys share the same like philosophies on parenting and life in general, it really helps to say, you know what, I like this woman, I like this man, I love what they're doing with their child, their pediatrician is likely going to align with their view, right? So Mm -hmm. it's nice to start there. If you don't have anyone like that, then going to your OB and asking your OB, hey, who do you recommend? They'll usually have a stack of cards based on recommendations from other patients Mm -hmm. and they'll say, Hey, this is a good option. And then the last one is online. Online is my least favorite, but it is a method. Why is because a lot of online, you know, a lot of people searching online will read reviews and online reviews for doctors. It's like, trying to do a Yelp review on a restaurant. Like some people are just not happy, even if the doctor's fantastic. They just didn't get what they wanted. And so I I take online reviews with a little grain of salt because you have to be careful. And some of the most amazing doctors get awful reviews. And some... And it's not anything on the doctor. It's literally the person just didn't mesh well. So you can search online, but if you're reading and you're like, oh, well, they got one negative review or two, don't use that as a judgment call because like even myself, I've had some awful reviews where I'm like, well, I do the best I can. And some are 
it's amazing. So it's like, you really have to go by word of mouth, meet the person, and you can schedule something called a prenatal visit, which is where you contact the office, ask them, hey, I would like to join this practice. Do you guys have tours? Can I meet some of the doctors at the practice? And it's a nice way before you deliver to meet with them, ask them some questions. And some of those questions are basically meeting them and their, you know, their personality. What is their practice philosophy? You know, what do they feel about, obviously, vaccinations, breastfeeding, mm-hmm. you know, stuff in the newborn period? What's their philosophies on parenting? Do they have kids of their own, if that's important to you? There's so many questions that you can ask. You know, what are their hours? What happens in the case of an emergency? Who do I call? What are your after-hour policies? Parking, insurance. There's a variety of different things. But I think the biggest thing is seeing if you'll click well with that person, right? Because it's a relationship. It's not... You could have the best doctor who's medically savvy, but if you don't like them as a person, it's just not going to work. It's you not going to work. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Same, and same advice for looking for an OB or any sort yeah. of doctor. I feel like you just have to find somebody that works with your personality. Like, it's funny, the whole time you were talking, I was thinking about like my experience with finding a pediatrician. And with Walter, when he was little, I did exactly what you said. You know, I interviewed people. I went to, in our area, a lot of the pediatricians, the groups, what they'll do is they'll host like monthly kind of get together kind of things for like expecting parents, you know? So I went to all of those and I just, I couldn't find one that I just really, like I was getting recommendations from people, but I was just like, oh, I'm not like crazy about this one or I don't really like this about this one. And so I finally just went with a practice that they were fine. They were a bigger kind of practice in the area. And I stuck with them for probably a year, but I just, I think some people like the bigger practices because there's not a whole lot of wait time. There's, you know, you can always really see somebody. They have Mm -hmm. usually like staff available. You know, it's like some people love that. I didn't like it because I just, I felt like I was trying to see the same lady every time, but she would get busy and I would have to schedule with another person. And I just, you know, you kind of just feel like a number. So I actually go to now, he used to be a pediatrician at the place that he worked at previously, but he's, it's just a family practice now. And I absolutely love it. Like I'm not saying that everybody needs to go to like that sort of practice because some people I very strongly believe that like kids need to go to a pediatrician's office and like if that makes sense like you're like yeah. don't go to a family doctor like you need to go to a pediatrician but that's just my experience and I love him we meshed well I see him he's my doctor he sees Walter he sees my husband like it's just a family practice and we go there but I think it's just so important what you said is like you got to find somebody that you guys mesh well and you respect, you know, because that's like the most important thing I feel like in the whole interview process. Yeah. And even with family medicine doctors, like I get that, I get that question on my Q and A's a lot. Like what's, should I go like in some markets, like some areas of the country, it's just family medicine docs are just more readily available. And it sounds crazy, but it is that person, right? Because you're Mm -hmm. right that it could be a great pediatrician or a pediatrician, but you meet a family med doctor who knows pediatrics, who obviously advocates for you. And that's a great fit. So I love that you found someone that works for you. And it's pretty awesome that you can see him too. And then, you know, Walter can see him as well. That's I just, yeah, Yeah. I love him and I love his values. He will go in, like I'll go in for our appointment and he'll ask about me, you know, how like I'm doing, if I'm bringing him in, he'll ask about me. He like, will ask about how my marriage is going, you know, it's like that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's like just a great practice, very, you know, family-based practice. So I love it. We got very lucky. All right. So this next question is, 
about reflux. (laughs) This is very common. I feel like I see people talk about reflux with their babies and struggles that they have with reflux with their babies all the time. And I just, luckily, Walter never had issues really with reflux. He was just, I mean, he spit up a lot, but I mean, babies, you know, it was never painful reflux or anything. We never got on meds or anything like that. But this is so common. This is just my opinion, but I feel like it's like becoming more and more common. It's like being diagnosed more and more. So give us your best, like a mom is saying, help, my baby has reflux. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Help me. I need help. Yeah. So it is common and a lot. Yeah. So I want to explain why it's so common so people, again, this is important so people understand why, 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 so they can yeah. maybe understand how it, and it will get better. And that's a hard thing because as general pediatricians, we commonly say things will get better. We promise it will get better. Yeah. Watch, 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 because less is more in so many ways. So the first reason is their sphincter, the way it's located, there is just a lot more, a lot more immature and just the location of it, it can cause food to come back up more readily. And when I say food, I mean breast milk or formula when they're young. So mm-hmm. it's not heavy, right? Breast milk and formula is a liquid medium. So when you lay them down or even just move them around, it's going to come spitting up, right? Most children, most babies spit up. Now, the difference between spit up and then when it starts to become reflux, reflux is more of a medical diagnosis associated with spit up that's become to the point where it's with every single feed, large volumes, the child is back arching. So mm. after the feeding, it's not just spit up and go back to their normal you know, nap time. It's literally every time they feed, they're literally back arching and writhing. It's from acid, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that is when it starts to become that diagnosis of reflux or GERD right? Gastroesophageal reflux disease, where it's like so uncomfortable, they're back arching. And then also at weight checks, when you come in for the visits, they could be losing weight, right? So, Mm -hmm. or not going on their curve. So when I'm assessing a child for reflux, the first question is, is this just spit up? Which when we call a baby a happy spitter, it means spit up is normal. And visually when they spit up, it's always going to seem like a lot of it is coming up when it's actually not a lot. I don't know if you know, taking care of babies. She's like, uh, obviously want a big account on social media. She posted this video once, which was really spot on about a baby spitting up and how, when it comes on the clothes, it looks like so much when it's really just like half an ounce. It's not, it's not that much. It's perceived to be a lot, but the babies, it's very normal for them to spit up half an ounce, maybe an ounce. Now, if they're back arching, if they're not gaining weight along their curve. And when I mean along their curve, I mean a baby who's on the 20th percentile, who's always on the 20th percentile, I'm okay. But a baby who's on the 20th and then all of a sudden drops to the 10th, the 5th, you know, we see that reduction. Then I'm a little more concerned that this baby is not getting enough food in and refluxing it out that we need to kind of intervene. So Mm -hmm. some basic principles that parents can do with spit up in general is if it's just spit up, really you don't need to do much, right? Spit up, meaning they spit up, they, they're comfortable, fine. Now, if it's reflux for their back arching, and um, I'll get to if they're losing weight, but if they're just back arching and comfortable, the advice that the pediatrician will usually give is smaller frequent feedings, meaning snacks instead of long feedings. So if a mother's breastfeeding, it may mean instead of doing 30 minutes, doing a 20 minute, giving the baby a break, burping the baby out, keeping them at like a, either as a, you know, the burping position or at an incline of 45 Mm -hmm. and then trying again later. And then also if you're formula feeding, cutting down the amount more frequently. 
Gotcha. That's the kind of first recommendation that we say if a baby is getting into that reflux category. And then if they're losing weight, if they're losing weight, the doctor will speak about reflux precautions, which is what I mean by that, upright after feeding, smaller amounts more frequently. And then they'll also talk about possibly, and this is again, you have to speak to your pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Some pediatricians, and I I do too, either adding like a teaspoon of rice cereal to the formula Mm -hmm. um, or pumped breast milk or adding, um, changing the formula to some formulas that are already made like that. Enfamil AR is a formula that adds rice to it. So Mm -hmm. it thickens up the formula. So it's not as likely to come up. Right. And then in some cases where it's really getting to the point where the baby is, and I, I usually reserve this if the baby's not gaining weight, is medicines. And that mm-hmm. is something called Zantac. And by the way, Zantac was just under a voluntary recall, um, which is, a li- I mean, it's crazy. And I, you know, at, at this point right now, most pediatricians are recommending if the baby can trial off of it, we trial off of it. But that's yeah. a whole other probably podcast. Yeah. Um, but Zantac... I personally am very reserved on my Zantac prescribing mm-hmm. if, because even before this recall came out, I just don't like a lot of medicines for children. I don't yeah, think of course. if we can get by and if the baby's gaining weight, if the baby's thriving, I talk about reflux precautions. I like, am the biggest cheerleader in saying that it's going to get better if you can just wait this out. Usually I see six months, seven months that it starts to improve once the baby's on more solids. Mm-hmm. you know, because then mm-hmm. you're not getting as much of that liquidy medium. It's more thick. So it is this waiting game, but it's really important that I think a parent understands that if the baby is just spitting up and what's called a happy spitter, where they spit up, they go back to sleep, fine. But if they're getting really agitated immediately after feedings, like the 20 minutes after back arching, like it literally looks like their back is in a C position, like yeah. arching oh. completely. If they're back arching or if the parents are concerned that they're not gaining weight, I think it's a really good idea that they see their pediatrician to go over, you know, are we going to do smaller frequent feedings? Are we going to yeah. do change the formula? Are we going to do medicine? And it is very stressful. The parents who deal with the babies that have really bad reflux, the kids aren't sleeping and yeah. they're harder to console. And it's it's tough, right? Because postpartum, especially the goal is to console a baby. That's our yeah. that's what every mother wants to be able to do or every caretaker. And some with refluxy babies, it can be very hard. So really important to understand that it is something physiologic that does get better. But in the meantime, it's speaking to your pediatrician about ways and, you know, what is the best method for what's in front of us, right? Is there, mm-hmm. it's, every situation's different. So just because your friend whose baby had reflux was on Zantac doesn't mean that your baby needs to be on Zantac or vice versa. So it's really important to kind of remember that everything's a case by case basis. We have to look at other symptoms. Is there blood in the poop? Is the baby, yeah. does the baby have really bad eczema? Because those can go into a whole other category of milk allergy. So Mm. it's really, it's not straightforward to just say, okay, I'm just going to switch the formula, not talk to my doctor about it because we are always doing differentials and remembering that, okay, do we need to do something else in this situation for the best outcome for the baby and making sure that, you know, baby's getting what they need, you know? So definitely I agree with you. A very, very tough tough topic because a lot of struggle can happen. Yeah. High stress, high stress yeah. too and high emotion, I feel like too. So it, it's touchy. Yeah. No, I love that you said you talked about like thickening the formula, but like, don't just 
don't do that without Unless really talking to your provider. Yeah. Yes. Because the reason is, and I, I love that you're saying that because again, I, I get it. It's hard to get, sometimes it's just so hard to get into your pediatrician's office. Yeah. It's the weekend or, you know, they're not available and we're so busy seeing patients. We can't always call you back like in an hour, you know, yeah. but the reason why we really want to talk to you about it is that one, adding too much uh, rice cereal or thickening to the formula can mm-hmm. pose a choking hazard. Yeah. So we don't want that. We don't want it to be just overdone. And if it's not necessary, we like to avoid it. We like to see, well, what can we do that's the bare minimum before we just keep going up the ladder to intervene, you know? So I agree with you completely on that. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to this next question. And this one kind of goes along with this you know, reflux kind of question is colic. Like Mm -hmm. what's going on with colic? My baby is colicky. What's all of that about and how do we help? Yes. So I'm actually, I, what I might do is actually talk about colic and gas in the same topic right now Yeah. because because sometimes it does kind of coincide and colic is a, I think my little IGTV that I post on colic has been very, very helpful on my Instagram Yes, because I love talking about colic. So let's, let's get started. Cool. Awesome. Yes. So um, (laughs) the biggest thing about colic, uh, the definition. Now the official definition is that it occurs under three months of age, three hours a day, three times a week that the baby is literally crying for no Mm -hmm. reason. And I put that in quotes, meaning the baby's fed, the baby's healthy, thriving, gaining weight, making pee-pee diapers, there's no fever, and literally just starts to cry. The yeah. normal story I get is usually in the evenings or middle of the night. So it can be like what we call the witching hour, like 6 yes. p.m., 7 p.m. For three, two hours, the baby is just losing their mind. And the parents will describe it that I've done everything. Like, I don't know what the heck happened. They just got crazy. And yeah. it usually presents, usually there's like a honeymoon period with babies where like, obviously, it's not easy having a newborn, but things are okay. The baby sleeps and then around like two weeks, three weeks of age, baby starts to realize that I'm not in a belly anymore. I am outside and there's a whole world of stimulation. And so I think a lot of colic comes from the stimulation that, Hey, I have a life now. There's lights, there's sounds, there's people, there's dogs, there's traffic. And I'm just a little tired of it. And I just want to cry. And they just go into these fits of three hours, two hours. The parents are literally trying to bounce them around and pass Mm -hmm. the baby around and nothing seems to work. A lot of colic is thought to also be like a parent will always say, oh, but he seems so uncomfortable. He Mm -hmm. seems like he has gas, right? And that's why I'm, I'm talking about gas as well. Yeah. Baby gas is a very common complaint that I get. And I really like to educate families that gas in general is a normal human process. And Everyone has gas, all right? Baby yeah. will have more gas because their digestive system is developing. Now, me and you as adults, if we pass gas, we're not going to make a face about it. Right. Baby, every sensation they go through, a hiccup, passing gas, passing stool, they are going to make faces because these are new sensations for them. They, yeah, don't, know, right. <laughs> they don't know what it means, right? They're like, mm-hmm. well, what is this? I, I have to pass this air. I don't know what it feels like. Help. Yeah. Help, right? But the thing is, I always advise my family, before you jump, like the hardest part in the newborn period is finding that balance between when do I respond and when do I just let it be, right? Because yeah. they're newborns. You can't let them just cry for hours, please, right? But yeah. I do advise that if the baby, just say you fed the baby and you birthed them and the baby starts to fuss a little bit, right? I always tell my families, give it a couple minutes before you react, right? Mm-hmm. Couple mm-hmm. minutes. They're newborn. So I don't want you to just let the baby cry. Yeah. But two minutes to see if the baby will settle because the less reactive we get, 
right? Especially if you've birthed them, changed them, fed them, you'll start to see this sort of balance of, no, he's fine. He's ha-, and I'm, I'm just using he because I'm having a boy, by the way, it could be a she. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do that too. <laughs> if, you know, the baby will pass the gas. Now, if the baby's not passing, of course, after a few minutes, two to five minutes, whatever, choose a time frame. Of course, then you go through your little checklist. Okay. I fed them. Does he need to be burped again? Does he just want to be rocked? Does he want to be held? Does he want to be bounced on like, a, you know, you're holding him on like a yoga ball and bouncing up and down. Does he want to be swaddled? You go through your like, you know, your five S's or kind of understanding is they just need to be like consoled because sometimes yep. they will. But in the end, in that sort of witching hour, sometimes it's better once you've gone through your checklist you've made sure that the baby's okay. Yeah. The whole day he's made wet diapers. There's no fever because Mm -hmm. this fuss is not related to fever. And that I've tried everything for the last 15, 20 minutes of consoling. It is okay to reset the situation, almost give everybody a timeout and lay the baby on their back in a crib or bassinet, never on their belly. Right. And just take a breather. Mm -hmm. Why this really helps my parents is that it's like a tantrum with the toddler, right? Mm-hmm. It's escalating. Everyone's crying. Mom's crying. Dad's crying. The baby's crying. We need to calm the situation. You've done everything, right? You have done your checklist. Laying the baby for 10 minutes and ha- allowing the caretaker to step out of the room and go yell into a pillow, get yeah. a glass of water. It allows us, us to it. decompress. I've yeah. done it. <laughs> it allows us to just decompress for the moment because taking care of a crying baby that you cannot console is extremely exhausting. And oh my gosh, the, yes. the exhaustion, what happens is that that exhaustion basically stacks onto the baby. So baby's upset, the parent's upset, the baby gets more upset, the parent gets upset, and someone needs to break that cycle. Finally, when I asked my parents, well, what happened? What ended it? We just all fell asleep and it just stopped. And I'm like, well, let's cut all that three-hour charade out and take these little breaks, right? Take yeah. the breaks. And you did everything. And I want parents to understand that I'm not saying that you're not attending to your baby, right? Of yeah. course, you are attending to them and you're assessing their needs. Does he need to be fed again? Does he need to be changed again? But once you've gone through that and the baby's still fussy, it's okay to give those moments. And I find that once parents realize that they're not doing anything wrong, because sometimes they feel I'm doing something wrong here. Like I need to stop this crying. So let me pass it from mama to grandma to to dad. And in my office, when I see that happen, I I have everyone sit down. I'm like, let's sit and let's just talk. And finally Mm -hmm. the baby falls asleep in, Mm -hmm. in my office. Like, because we're just so obsessed with stopping the crying that it leads to them being more upset, swallowing more air getting more gassy and crying more. So You're so like, right. You're so, so right. It's really <laughs> important to, to stop and be like, wait, I did everything. I'm doing mm-hmm. everything right. I know what I'm doing, I, but it's hard postpartum. Mm-hmm. So with the hormone, so I find that there's a really strong correlation between colic and postpartum depression. Oh, yes. And I, I think it comes from like the baby's obviously hard to console so the mother can have higher incidence of postpartum depression because you your goal is to console. And when you can't console, it leads you down this path of what am I doing? Like I'm not able mm-hmm. to console this human being that I created for nine months and or you know, a little less, and I feel awful that I should be the one to be able to console this baby and I can't. And yeah. that I call I call there's a psychology behind colic and I see it all the time and in my practice, I don't have many colicky babies because at the beginning, I put this down. I like literally lay down these rules and I say, guys, they're colicky, but I do believe there's a psychological component behind colic that every baby to some degree fusses, but it's this perception from the caretaker that, oh no, this is way more fuss. Now, that being said, if a baby is crying all day, 
right? If it's just a few hours, you know, always the same time every night, that's colic. If the baby's crying all day, 18 hours a day, spitting up, that's not colic, right? So I don't want parents to think that, oh, this is totally normal. Because then we have to think, is there, you know, milk protein allergy? Is it reflux like we mentioned? But Mm -hmm. if it's so localized, like similar times, the baby does calm. And usually the story is that they'll calm during the day and then the evenings are the worst. That is colic, right? So mm-hmm. it's important to bring this up with their doctor because they'll say, oh, that sounds like colic or no, this sounds like you know milk allergy or a reflux because all of those GI symptoms can kind of come together, right? Like a gassy baby, like sometimes a doctor will recommend if they're formula fed, trialing Gentilese. Enthymol Gentilese is a formula that's more broken down. So it's mm-hmm. better per se for sensitive tummies. And then if a mother's breastfeeding, sometimes they'll talk about, okay, looking out for triggers, like when you eat broccoli or when you mm-hmm, eat mm-hmm. cabbage or dairy, are you finding that your baby's more gassy and bothered than cutting that out? But there's really no, and I have to be clear on this, there is no proven diet for colic. And I mm-hmm. really want parents to be clear about this because what happens and what I've seen is that breastfeeding mothers will eliminate everything because their baby's fussy yeah. and the baby's still fussy. And, and then you're miserable because you're not eating anything. And you're not eating. And then your breast milk supply goes down. That yeah. the more sadness, you know, like the caretaker mm-hmm. mom is upset that now they can't breastfeed and then they get so sad and then they have to supplement and then they feel like now I'm a failure because I can't, I can't breastfeed. I'm like, yes. no, 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 you are not a failure. Nothing is bad here. It's literally, it's not you, it's the baby and it's going to get better. And you know, I see the heartache so much, which is why colic is such a passion of mine because it is something that does like spit up, get better with time. And then it can rob the joy of motherhood when you're being so fussy. And I, I've seen it. Like I've seen my mothers in tears and not enjoying, and I get it. Postpartum is not the easiest experience, but they're not loving their kid as much as you can because they can't console them. And it's so heartbreaking. And I love if people want to watch my video clip, I have like five little videos about this in detail. I think it'll be really helpful. But yeah, you know, after I have my baby, I know I know my baby's going to have some degree of this, you know, every baby does some degree of these moments where I'm going to lose my mind and want to leave in the room and go cry yeah. in the pillow. And I'm going to be very open and candid about sharing those moments because I get it. Like I'm not, even though I haven't been a mother yet, I see it all the time and mm-hmm. I know how hard it is to be in that role and want to be the one to console your baby because that's what mothers do. You know? And I feel like it's so much worse yeah. when it's your baby. Like I, just going back you know, a babysat when I was younger and like, I would take care of kids who would be like that, you know, they're young babies and they're crying, 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 crying. And like, yeah, of course I'm a young kid. Like it's bothersome, but gosh, hearing my own child, like my newborn baby, infant child cry, it's like, it gets under your skin. It's like, you know, I think there's something behind, I think that's one of the sounds they use to like torture people in yes, other countries. Yes. It's like crying babies because it's so, oh, uh, it gets oh, under yeah. your skin. And also, I mean, there's like this big article talking about, and it makes sense that the, because of the hormones that are released from mothers after yes. delivery, the oxytocin, everything, the way you hear your baby cry is different than how your partner would hear the baby cry or right. how your doctor would hear the baby cry or anybody else. You hear it to this level because you're so much more in a way connected to that baby that's yes. different than anyone else. And I, I hundred percent believe that like yeah, that, that cry, like, of course, as a pediatrician, I've learned to drown out crying. And everyone's yes. like, how do you function? And I'm like, I have to at my job. But when it's my baby, 
it's going to be a yes. different level of crying. Yeah, because yes. the hormones, it's like this guy has been in me for like eight months now. He knows me from the inside out. I and know. so when he comes out and he cries, I'm going to feel like, oh my God, what do I need to do for you? Like, I what know. do I do? It's true. I completely agree with you on that for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to this next question. This one is about vitamin D drops and breastfeeding babies. So this one was, are vitamin D drops truly necessary for breastfed babies and how exactly do they help? With my first baby, things were hard in the newborn days. I seriously struggled and underestimated just how much went into caring for a baby in the very first three months. Honestly, why didn't anyone tell me to learn how to take care of my baby while I was pregnant? With our online class, Newborn Basics 101, you'll have the foundational knowledge you need to hit the ground running as a new parent and have an easier transition into motherhood. Head over to mommylabornurse.com slash newborn basics to learn more. Okay. Yeah. So the recommendation, and this is actually an, a very good question because there's a lot of division between pediatricians about this. And I'm going to tell you where I stand. I'm going to tell you where the AAP stands and then yeah. what I recommend. Okay. Um, so the AAP, which is the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommends that all breastfed babies who are solely breastfed should get 400 units of supplemental vitamin D every day via the dropper. Like you can get it from the pharmacy, polyvisol or just vitamin D. Gerber has vitamin D drops daily. So that's the recommendation from the AAP. Now, speaking about that, I can see why the thought is that breast milk does not have as much or enough vitamin D fortified in it to mm -hmm. provide the daily recommendations for babies. So they recommend, okay, let's just add that on just to provide vitamin D for babies. Why is that if babies are low on vitamin D, it can lead to a condition called rickets. So mm -hmm. rickets is a basically metabolic condition where you have low vitamin D that can lead to brittle bones and the bones can become more brittle, leading to more fractures and more issues in the you know newborn infancy period. Now, I don't think any general pediatrician has seen rickets for the last maybe 20 years. So that's why I'm saying that there's a lot of debate on whether vitamin D drops are necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, before I started working at the job I am working at now, I worked under another mentor who was fantastic up in New York, who was this French doctor who told me, and we talked about it, and he's like, why would the creator of breast milk not have created breast milk to be the perfect substance? Yeah. So why are we going through this and saying that vitamin D, it's not enough, right? If people in the middle of nowhere had breast milk and are turning out fine, right? Like, you know, like yeah. in the middle of nowhere, America, or like, like other countries, why yeah. are we supplementing something that whoever you believe created us, God, whoever, I don't know, yeah. um, whoever you believe created us, why would they not have created something that was enough, right? And yeah. I actually understand completely. I actually can see that. I'm like, why of everything? Why is that the one thing that it's not enough, right? Yeah. When I recommend vitamin D, I look at risk factors. So what the risk factors are, obviously, so vitamin D, the way we get it is from foods, obviously, milk, foods, dairy, all have vitamin D. Sunlight exposure, it helps convert the inactive form to the active form of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So risk factors for low vitamin D include living in like a very cold climate where there's poor sun exposure. So let's talk about maybe like the Northeast during the winter, you yeah. know, where it's very cold urban populations where there are tall buildings with little sunlight, right? Mm -hmm. And darker skin babies. When you're darker skin, you're less likely to have that conversion process. Mm -hmm. So those are your risk factors, right? So that being said, like in Florida, 
I where I practice. <laughs> I don't talk about vitamin D a lot unless Ooh, vitamin D is going yeah. around all the time. Yeah, <laughs> There's sun everywhere. We're, yeah. Because we're and, and I get it, babies are not going out in the sun like having a suntan, but they're yeah. getting indirect sunlight. <laughs> you know, they're getting that indirect sunlight. So I talk about with families. Now, if I look at the risk factors, right, meaning if they're darker skin, if they Mm -hmm. are living in a more urban population, then I talk to them about, you know what, I really would like you guys to do this, please, if they're solely breastfeeding. And I explain, please do it as much as you can remember, meaning daily. Yeah. But sometimes you forget, right? Mm -hmm. Like parents like, did I give my vitamin D today? Did I not? So my advice is that if you can, giving vitamin D is great. But if you forget, the likelihood of getting rickets is extremely low. Now, if you're living in like a very cold climate where you're not getting a lot of sun exposure, I would say err on the side of just doing it because you're not Mm -hmm. getting the exposure. But if you're like in a place where you are able to go for a stroll, right? Like outside, do it. But if you forget, don't beat yourself up over it. For example, like for us, I didn't buy vitamin D drops. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to get yelled at by my colleagues (laughs) who are going to see my baby. Um, (laughs) I probably will buy it and just do this when I'm telling you, like yeah. give it to him when I remember. Because again, at the end of the day, it's not harmful to give it. Right. 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 So it's not, it's just, is it necessary? Right. That's kind of my philosophy on anything that we're putting into our baby's bodies. Like, is this something we need to do? You know, and I think eventually the recommendations may change, but if a family can do it and they can get it in and they remember, do it. Right. But if you forget and you're like, Oh shoot, when was the last time? It's not the end of the world. Now the AAP would probably disagree with what I'm saying and say, you have to have it every day. But most general pediatricians are in this avenue of like that I talked to, that you know what, yeah. do it if you can, but if you can't, don't worry, unless you're in the middle of nowhere, where it's yeah. super cold, you're not getting any sunlight, and especially your darker skin, right? Those are your risk factors, and it would be beneficial to be more vigilant about it. Now, if you're supplementing formula, you know, usually it's about like, I think the recommendation I think right now is like, if you're getting more than 20 to 25 ounces a day, you don't have to. But right. if you do any formula supplementation, you don't have to do it. This is solely breastfed. But mm-hmm. I really like to go over this debate because there is still so much debate. Like I still talk to doctors at my practice that are like, you don't talk about it every visit in the newborn. I'm like, no, unless mm-hmm. there's risk factors. Yeah. Absolutely if there's risk factors, but if they're not, I'd explain it exactly like this. Please do it if you can. But if you can't, don't worry. Like if I ever see rickets and I'll change my tune, but yeah, the only case of rickets that I've seen so far was a darker skin child who was living in an urban population. Mm-hmm. And of course that's when the risk factors are there. Right. So yep. that's yep. kind of what I advise my families to think about that. If they're otherwise getting in direct sunlight, then you can monitor, but always good to talk to your own doctor. Cause I don't want to be the one to say it. Don't do that yeah. And yeah, no. Back at me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I totally 100% agree with you because that's exactly what I did. I yeah. just kind of bought the vitamin D drops and I was like, okay, we'll give these, you know, hopefully try to do them as, you know, if I remember. Often, but remember, right. yeah, but then. And I was very lax about, I mean, there were three or four days that go by and I'm like, oh crap, I forgot to give him his vitamin D or whatever. But yeah, no, I, yeah. I completely agree. And with I mean, there that. is, I mean, that being said, there is a lot more research coming out about the benefits of vitamin D. Right, right. I supplement myself. Like I was having like depression thoughts because I was like, yeah. and, and they like drew my vitamin D and they were like, oh, you're like critically low on your vitamin D. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably yeah. why you feel so sad. And, you know, it's just, it was winter time. I was inside all the time. I was yeah. stressed out, all of this stuff. So yeah, no, I mean, I still supplement myself every day with vitamin D. So yeah, well, good. I'm glad we kind of cleared 
that up. And I like yeah. your, I like your response on that. Oh, yeah. Good. All right. So this next question is, and I feel like this one's super normal too. My baby is breastfed and is going long stretches without pooping. Is that normal? Like what's up? Because I feel like yeah. everybody, some people are like, no, babies should poop every single day. And some, yeah. people, some people are like, no, I mean, breastfed babies, they should go a few, you know, it's okay if it goes a few days. So what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I can talk and I'll maybe talk about newborn poop in general. Like yeah. I get a lot of poop questions. Like when is yeah. it normal? What do I worry about? So yes, to answer your question, it is completely normal yeah. for even a formula fed baby and breastfed baby to go days. And I'm talking seven to 10 days yes. without pooping. Walter did. And, oh my gosh. Yes. It's so weird too. And <laughs> like, think what? About it as like, think about it as like, we create poop because it's waste, right? But when you're a baby, you're using all those nutrients and all that breast milk and all that formula yep. and you don't create much waste and yep. that's normal. So yes, you are right that and I think what happens, and I, I think the fear might come, and I don't know how your labor and delivery floor works, but a lot of, you know, when parents leave the hospital, like I know some of our nurses will say, you have to have X, Y, and Z poops on this day and this day yeah. initially, but then it starts to fade. It can be totally, totally random, baby to baby. I mean, in the newborn period, like under one week, yeah, they have to be making poops every day. Yeah. But I'm talking now, like that mentality sticks into parents' head. So then they forget that after like two weeks or even 10 days of age, the poops can start to get a little weird. So I always remind them that even though it was the newborn period and that you were told that poops can be like this, it can totally change. And stretches can go seven to 10 days. Color, I get often asked a lot, like what colors are normal? The mm-hmm. only colors we do not like to see are red, black, and white. Mm-hmm. If it's green, yellow, smells like peas, mm-hmm. I don't care. Like, it's like, there's so many, I see baby poop all day. Yeah. But as, if it's red, lucky black, you. or white, I know, lucky. And they're like, do you want to see it? I'm like, you can just show me a picture. <laughs> I don't need to see it. I mean, if you want to show me, I can That's like my. That reminds me of my patients that come in and like show me their mucus plugs. Oh my <laughs> like, gosh. You're like, I'm okay. good. I've seen them. Yeah. It's so funny because always, and I don't mind, I, I think it's great, but they always yeah. like line up the diet, like one parent like lined up all the diapers and they yeah. have all the diapers oh, laid gosh. out. And I'm like, I believe you when you tell me what, what it is. You can just describe it to me or take a picture, but we're just joking. It's like, I literally have, it doesn't even phase me anymore. I'm like, yep, yeah, that's normal. That's normal. But yeah. if it's black, like, you know, obviously mm-hmm. like jet black, mm-hmm. um, bloody mucusy poop or white, like a paper. Yeah. Those are the three colors you should always bring up to your pediatrician just so that they can evaluate the child. But consistency, like for example, like parents will often say it's more watery or more, you know, just liquidy. That is okay if the baby's gaining good weight. Now, yeah. if the baby's not thriving, right? Again, I go back to the weight checks. If the baby's mm-hmm. not thriving and there's like looser poop, we talk about colic and reflux and all that, then I'm going to get into more of like, oh, is there something that we need to change with the formula or breastfeeding? But if it's just liquidy, but the baby's gaining weight, there's no color issues, that is normal poop. And babies can go seven to 10 days. It does not mean that they're constipated. Yeah. Right? Constipation is a very common thing. Even parents will describe straining, right? Oh, my mm-hmm. baby's straining. I'm like, but did they finally poop? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I'm like, how was the poop? It was normal. I'm like, that is what I was describing in that colic conversation of mm-hmm. he or she is just trying to figure out how the heck do I get this out? Right. And yep. they're going to squirm. Now, if they're straining and nothing's coming and it's been, you've seen them for like 24 hours, straining, 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 oh. pushing hard, nothing's yeah. coming. 
talking to the doctor about, you know, remedies in the infancy period for constipation Mm -hmm. is a good idea. I will go over some old school recommendations, but again, I have to defer it to people speaking to their pediatrician. Of course, yes. Uh, Prune juice is one common one, like an ounce of prune juice if the baby's, Mm -hmm. if it's a little baby. Caro syrup is another Mm -hmm. common old school remedy for infant, baby, newborn constipation. But there's a difference between constipation versus normal straining where you just let it happen, right? And it, it really is this difference of he's been straining for 24 hours, nothing's coming, he seems very bothered, the belly's very full, nothing's coming. Then it's talking to the doctor or nursing line about, hey, what can I do for this constipation? Do I do bicycles of the leg? Do I do prune juice, caro syrup? But it is very common for there not to be poop every day and it not to be labeled constipation. Because that's what parents think, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my baby hasn't pooped. He must be constipated, but not necessarily. It's a combo of straining and nothing's coming out. Yeah. No, that's great. Because I think we always just defer to how we are when, yes, you know, because it's like fairly normal. Most people poop every day or every other day. I mean, some people go a few days, but can you remember last time you went seven to 10 days without pooping? Never. (laughs) So you're like, oh my God, this is so crazy. Like what if my baby's constipated? Like, blah, blah, blah. So no, I love that. I love that. Well, this next question kind of transitions into the whole GI tract. (laughs) We're just talking about a lot of GI stuff. Yes. Very common. (laughs) So this one is about solids and what is the best time to kind of introduce solids and what are your best recommendations for that? Yeah. So uh, there is usually as general pediatricians, we talk about it at the four month visit because it can happen Mm -hmm. anytime after that. Now, um, a lot of, you know, and I'll be very honest, now that I've joined social media, I find out more about what people are not happy with and happy with like, and what I get a lot of people upset about certain things. And I'm like, wow, so a lot of, you know, very staunch breastfeeding supporters say, how could you ever support introducing solids? That's a very common thing. I know. I respect where they're coming from. I'm I'm not saying that this child has to be fed. I'm just telling families that it's an option if they want to start. Now, the reason why, and I, I really am happy we're talking about this. The reason why we do recommend the intro of solids as early as four months now is because of allergy reduction, right? So yes. the signs of readiness, which I'll go over first, after the four-month visit, the baby should have better head control. I don't expect them to be sitting completely head steady all the time, but they shouldn't be a bobblehead doll, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, they're, if they have better head control, number one, they probably are ready. If they're starting to thrust their tongue out, like if you're eating something and you bring a spoon towards their face and they start to thrust their tongue, they're mm-hmm. probably interested. Mm-hmm. And then number three, they're staring you down like while you're <laughs> eating. They're like, mom, forget the breast milk and the formula. Give me the good stuff. They're staring Give me that you hamburger. Down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like literally their mouth is opening. They're probably yeah. ready. And then number four, when you bring the spoon to their mouth, just say you make something like pureed and bring it to their mouth, they're able to thrust their tongue and then mm-hmm. push it from the front of their mouth to the back, right? They're ready to start solids. Now I bring it up at the four month because it can happen some babies earlier than that, but four months is a good starting point. And at that point, if the baby's formula fed, you know, solely formula fed, I do talk to the family about how, hey, if the baby's ready to eat, go forth, you know, they're not going to take a lot initially. They're only four month olds. They're not going to eat like everything, but you're starting to get them introduced. You're doing puree, like, you know, soft pureed foods, not yeah. no seasonings that early, sweet potato, avocado, I prefer homemade if you're able to do that. Store-bought is fine, but you yeah. have to be careful that they, you know there's a lot of added sugars and stuff. So whatever the family's capable of doing, I'm happy with. But starting slow, just like a little bit. You're just doing like a spoonful 
choose lunchtime and starting. And then once you've done well with that, you do another meal and then you do another meal. But initially at four months, the baby's not doing tons. You're literally just getting them comfortable with different things. Right. Now, if they're breastfed, I talk with the family and depending on where they're coming from, I talk about, hey, I understand you want to slowly breastfeed. The goal is still breastfeed, but after breastfeeding sessions, maybe choosing one meal a day to have that be after I do my breastfeeding session, offering a little, little spoonfuls of sweet potato, right? Mm -hmm. Doing the breastfeeding first and then having the food be second. Some of my families, I'll be honest, are done with breastfeeding by that point. And mm -hmm. again, people have to understand that everyone's different. So yeah. come at me and say, you know, well, how could you support? I'm like, I'm not saying everyone has to do it. I'm just saying that a lot of families by that point, they're like, I've loved my breastfeeding journey. I want to introduce food now and the baby's ready and I'm yeah. ready to transition off. And I'm like, that's okay. Like that's your power. And that is not medically wrong. So then yeah. they say they start to introduce food and slowly by six months, seven, eight months, the liquids start to reduce because they're eating more. Right. So mm -hmm. it really is. I have an intro to solid thing on my page too, but it is this sort of, are they ready after four months, if they're ready, what does the family want? I have some families that are so scared of introducing food. Like yeah. they're petrified. And yeah. one, the reason is a lot of the sentiment I get is choking hazards. They're mm. just so afraid. And on the other side is that they've enjoyed their breastfeeding journey and they don't want to introduce. And I'm like, mom, that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Like you don't have, you can wait, wait six, seven months. But why I don't want them to wait too long is that when they show signs of readiness, you want to run with it. And when I say run with it, when a baby shows sign of readiness, this is the first sign that they are ready to go to food. It really helps when they're showing signs and that we are reciprocating their readiness. It can mm -hmm. really help them become a better eater when we're reading their signs and fostering that, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we're getting scared and saying, no, 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 I'm not ready, even though you are, we're reinforcing the fact that I'm not meeting you at your developmental milestone when you are ready to do something and I'm just the one who's scared, right? Yeah. If the kid's ready to do it, it really can make them a better eater, right? Getting exposed to foods literally in the first six months to one year of life, right? Like is when you can create really good eating habits. Like yeah. again, I'm very audacious in these comments, but a lot of my families in my practice are very good eaters because at the four, six month visit, I talk about how it's really important to start diversifying because mm -hmm. introducing veggies, introducing flavors after six months, nine months, introducing all this stuff that we're eating as they advance is so important for them because they learn that this is what we do as a family. I don't have to eat baby food for my entire life. Mm -hmm. If I'm showing signs of readiness that I can transition to more, you know, textured foods, finger foods, I'm going to do that. Right. So I really like to remove that fear from families. You know, it's everyone's comfortable with different things that I have families that, that they're afraid of choking and all that. I talk about like making sure that the finger foods that are mashable, yeah. like they're softer if you're steaming the vegetables, because I get it. There's a fear of that because then what happens is if we stick with purees till they're one year old, 15 months, the child never learns how to go towards the next stage, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's really important. So the intro of solids, one of the biggest mantras I have is the parent has to be ready. It has to be enjoyable. So the parent needs to understand that the kid is not going to love every food that they're introduced, but they have to remember their face is very important. Like, so if you're feeding your kid like sweet potato and they don't like it and you make a face like, oh, oh my gosh, right? Like you look stressed. Kids are They're not going to like it. Yeah. They're very smart. Like you have to make this an enjoyable experience. Like your face has to show that, 
I'm liking this too. You, you, you may not love everything or you may like it, yeah. but I like this. This is fun for me. It's fun for you. And if they don't love it, remember that that's okay. You try again, you try again. So be patient, be persistent and enjoy the experience. Like it has to be you and them face to face, right? It should, yeah. as you know, with kids, it's not a lot of it takes a lot of time. They take a lot of time to eat, but that's what we have to teach them that eating should be the slow, enjoyable experience, not scarfing food down. A lot of the principles and the relationship with food starts in the infancy period. And I, mm. it's great. Like, so if we are so rushed, like eat, 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 why aren't you eating fast, fast, fast? Mm-hmm. Some adults, we think that we have to eat fast and that I have to eat all my food and I have to do all this. Like, it's really important to be very, let them kind of lead the show. And that's why I actually really enjoy baby led weaning. Yeah. I was just going to ask about that. Yeah of the concept of baby led weaning because you're teaching your child from a very young age that you are in control with Mm -hmm. how much you eat and the speed at which you eat it. Mm -hmm. Slow eating is so important. Like me and my husband talk about this. I am a very fast eater and it's bad. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it's not good for you to be a fast eater. So am I. Yeah. I'm I'm in a rush. I'm always in a rush and I'm Mm -hmm. like literally scarfing down my food. And he's like, Mona, like take a moment, like enjoy the food. Like he Mm -hmm. eats very slow. And he's, and it's good like for him to take that moment. But me, I'm like, he's like, what are you in a rush for? (laughs) Like, it's not going anywhere. But I think, I think it comes from when I was young. Like I'm being honest, like it was this sort of eat, eat, eat. You got to finish. You got to finish your food. Like there should be this savoring, which in infancy period, like if you do baby led or not understanding that they're not going to finish everything we give them, but Hey, take your time and enjoy it. Right. And yeah, it's hard because we don't have a lot of hours in the day, but it does set up a good tone for eating. I have a lot of passion about a lot of things, but <laughs> intro intro to foods and all this stuff too is one of the big areas because I do see good eating habits in a lot of my patients started when the baby was before one year of age. Yeah. Like that's it's crazy. And I, I asked my families, I'm like, what did you do? What did you think you did that made your child a good eater? And yeah. they were like, I didn't fuss over it. I introduced them a variety of stuff from a young age, seasonings, whatever I ate, the baby ate, meaning like after nine months, go forth. If you're eating like lobster, mash that lobster down and have that baby have it, right? That's exactly what we did. Yep. No, it's okay. But there's such a fear of like, I can't give this. I don't want to give this. I don't want this, that. And then the stress that my baby's not eating enough or doing enough and the stress that causes the baby and everyone not to enjoy the experience of food. Food is a enjoyable experience. And it could be that, but it's this expectation. I think that we all have for our kid to be a certain way that it can remove that joy of eating. Yeah, I absolutely. Love I love it. <laughs> I know. Same. Yeah. I, it was yeah. funny. Cause when you were talking about eating fast, like I think of my mom because she always would say I'm not as fast eater as she is, but she's yeah. a very, very fast eater. And she always said she is like one of eight. And she always said that she's a fast eater because if she didn't eat fast, like she wouldn't eat because <laughs> she had eight <laughs> brothers and sisters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's one reason. Maybe if you yeah. have a bunch of kids, you- it's right. You gotta you gotta eat to survive. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's go on to this next question. So this one is about cradle cap, and this is very comp. Walter had oh my gosh, so much cradle cap, and it was pretty easy to like. I would just this is bad. I don't know if you're gonna if no, you're no. gonna you're gonna be like Liesl. Why did you do that? But I would just sit on the porch with him and just like 
pick at his cradle cap, he wouldn't be bothered by it. I would just sit there and just kind of scratch his head. And he had no hair, so it was like very easy to do. But I think moms are very concerned about cradle cap because it looks really ugly and crazy, you know? So let's talk a little bit about cradle cap and how long, you know, it stays for and like, what do you do about it or do you even do anything about it? In the end, it's not a dangerous thing, as you know. Yeah. It's, not, it's not an underlying deficiency of any kind. You know, well, commonly parents, when rashes come on the skin, they want to make sure, do I need to change anything, right? Yeah. Like, do I need to change anything in the diet? Like, that's the number one question I get. Do I need yeah. to change anything in what I'm doing? And I'm, no, cradle cap, it's, we don't know exactly what the pinpoint is, but it's thought to be from residual hormones from mom. Right, like residual hormones, there's overactive sebaceous glands in the skin and also in the scalp that causes this sort of scale to Mm -hmm. be overdeveloped, right? And it's almost like it can kind of come in in line with baby acne. Like I commonly Mm -hmm. find that Mm -hmm. babies who get severe cradle cap also have severe baby acne. Not Mm -hmm. always, but they can it comes together and Mm -hmm. that would make sense because both are the same kind of concept. But in the end, yeah, I think that's what you did. I have no problem with that. (laughs) Good. (laughs) It's removing, it's as unsightly as it can be. It's nothing dangerous for the baby. There are so many great products, like anything like an oil base is the best thing, like a coconut oil, olive oil, you know, anything. I like coconut oil the best, basically like every night or every couple nights. However, the baby can tolerate it because everyone's skin's different. So if you do it every night, like massaging the scalp with coconut oil and combing out that scale. Mm -hmm. Awesome. But if the baby is sensitive to that, just do it every other night or something. Yeah. But that is it. That is basically softening up and loosening the scale. Now, in very severe cases, sometimes the pediatrician will prescribe like an antifungal cream, Mm. you know, and I haven't had to do that yet because usually with vigilant like oil use, like coconut Mm -hmm. oil and, and combing, it does get better. Can I ask when his got better for Walter? Um, three months usually. Yeah, it wasn't, he was little, like I would just sit outside and I could, I still had to kind of hold his head because he wasn't really able to like have his head. Yeah, Yeah. it was probably, yeah, it was maybe a little bit later than that. Maybe five or six months. months, It kind of got better. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very common and it it does, it really, really does get better. Um, even if you did no prescription meds, but the oil is the best thing. And then mineral oil, is also a good thing, but just removing, massaging it in and using like a comb and combing it all back to get that scale out. That's the best thing. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I did. I would sit out there and that's what my pediatrician at the time told me to do. Just take a little bit of coconut oil and coconut oil is nice because it's like, you know, it's pretty solid until you warm it up. Yeah. So I would just like get it and it would kind of be solid and I would kind of like massage it through my fingers and then put it on. And it, I mean, it would come right off. It was this is weird of me, I guess, but like, I just enjoyed picking it off of his yeah. head. I don't know. It's like, yeah. a, it's like a popping the zit kind of like yeah, enjoyment. Yeah. Like, I don't oh, know. And then, you, and then you see it come off. You're like, oh, that, off. that feels good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this next question kind of goes with the cradle cop because you, you did mention baby acne, yeah. but wanted to talk a little bit about baby acne because people have a lot of issues with baby acne. Yeah. You see these pictures on the internet. If you Google baby acne, it's like this, these crazy like baby acne cheeks and yeah. their foreheads and stuff. So what do you have to say about that? And, you know, any remedies and stuff that you yeah, have? Yeah. So also kind of related to this sort of hormone withdrawal, yeah. like, you know, being in a hormone environment for so long, they come out, it's like almost like I call it like a mini puberty, 
Like they're going through a little mini puberty. They have hormones and their sweat glands and sebaceous glands are just so overactive. And they produce all these little yeast, bacteria, all of that is on the skin in normal amounts, but in acne, it just goes a little overdrive. Now, the best thing is not to scrub or pop the pimples. Mm -hmm. Like, even though I know, I know we were saying you don't, for babies, you don't want to do that because Mm -hmm. you know, scarring and irritation Yeah. Um, for babies, you don't want to use any like over the counter washes or anything, unless you talk to the pediatrician, like don't just get remedies that you've heard, because again, you want to make sure that it's the right diagnosis. And also every kid's skin is different. Like I can't stress this enough. There are so many products out there, but your kid may react differently to a product than another kid. So Mm -hmm. I'm okay with parents trying different things, but they have to remember that every kid is different and that don't expect what worked for your friend to work for you. You can gently clean it. So that means like any formula or breast milk that comes on the face, like just wiping that away mm-hmm. gently, not scrubbing. So any breast milk drool formula, just gently wiping that away and not using any moisturizers on the face. Yeah. So commonly like, you know, lotions and stuff, you want to kind of be wary of using too much because that can irritate sensitive skin. Yeah, um, And it just, I mean, for me, he had this as well, but I feel like his cradle cap kind of lasted longer than like his baby acne. Uh-huh. And it kind of peaked when he was probably about two months. And then it just, I mean, I didn't even really do anything about it. It just, yeah. I think I put aqua, some aquaphor on it or something, yeah. maybe. Um, and it just kind of dry away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was my issue is it would just, his cheeks would get dry. He just has right. sensitive skin all around. So I mean, I slather aquaphor on yeah. and everywhere. Um, I know there's so many companies like I, I mean, again, I, this is not sponsored or anything, but I, yeah. T- Tubby Todd is like a on like yeah. a, another company. I haven't heard a single mother tell me that they have not loved Tubby Todd like yeah. for baby acne. Now it's an online company. So it's one of those things that I'm okay with parents trying. I think they have like an all body solution that like, mm-hmm. a, like a moisturizer. I'm okay. But remembering that every baby's different and that yeah. don't expect that it's going to work for everybody. But I'm okay with those kind of products. In severe situations, what we do, like I have had cases where I literally have walked in and I even was like, is this baby acne? Because I've yeah. seen some pretty gnarly... Aww baby acne. And I've actually had to call in one of my colleagues. And in in severe cases, we do do, and it was pretty, it was baby acne. We both were looking at it. We actually referred them to a dermatologist because it was the most severe case of baby acne I've ever seen in my seven years of residency and practicing. And they confirmed that it was baby acne. Um, But in that case, they prescribed like a antifungal cream. Because mm. remember that it could be an overproduction of yeast, overproduction mm-hmm. of bacteria. So in that situation, they prescribed an antifungal cream. The baby did get better, which is amazing. But yeah. it really just depends. Like if it's really bad antifungal, sometimes I tell families if it's so bad, like you were saying, like for Walter, like it just got so rosy and that it's just a few days go by and it's still super, super red. A low dose hydrocortisone cream is an mm-hmm. option over the counter to help with the inflammation. But I, yeah. the other reality of baby acne is some days are worse than others. Like, yes. I don't know if that happened to Walter. Like you'll wake up one day and you're like, I didn't do anything different. Yeah. And then one, the next day it'll be all gone, you know? So I tell my family is usually like, if it's been like three days, I have a three day rule for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. If it's been three days and the baby is still super inflamed and rosy, you know, talking to their pediatrician, doing a short course of a hydrocortisone over the counter, low dose is fine. If it's so irritated, you know, mm-hmm. but if they can get away with nothing and it, it waxes and wanes like you did, it mm-hmm. is the best. Right. And it's tough though. And I agree with you because again, our baby comes out and you're like, Oh, nice baby skin. And, yeah. And it's, it's hard, all these skin issues in, from a young age, because you know, the, the visual appearance, granted, it's not anything serious. It's, I get why parents would be concerned and 
you know, they obviously want the best and making sure that what can I do to just make the baby comfortable and make me comfortable. Right. But less is more with these rashes for sure. Right. And I think, I mean, I was always concerned like, oh gosh, it looks so red. It looks like it's really hurting him. Like it's, but it really, I mean, it's just baby acne. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it wasn't, you know, yeah. that's what a pediatrician told me. She was like, no, it's, he's not in pain or anything. Like it's just, I know it looks kind of scary, but she was like, it'll kind of good. And it's so funny that you said like a three day period. Cause I, I swear it peaked. Remember it was, it peaked for like, it was like literally like three days and then it, it was faded. still kind of there, yeah. but it faded. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think that's so, so important. All right. So this next question, this last question that we're going to talk about, and then we'll wrap up is about congestion. Of course, guys, it's starting to get to the winter months. Yeah. So people are just going to start you know, getting more sick. So this one is my baby is coughing, congested at night. Like, what can I do? He can't even really seem to eat because he's so stuffed up. Yeah. So what are your best, best recommendations on that? So what I'll do is I'll do the different age groups because it just yeah. depends based on the age groups. Yeah. So like under two months, obviously because their immune systems are a little more weak and, you know, if a baby's coughing, I think it's a good idea to have a doctor check them out, yes. you know, the next available appointment under two months, because there's just not a lot of medicines and remedies under that age. You know, mm-hmm. the doctor at that point will just listen to their chest, obviously talk to the family, make sure if there's any cough with a fever they need to notify them right away. And this is again, under two months, cough with fever, not making pee pee diapers. If everything else is good on that standpoint, the pediatrician will probably recommend some like nasal saline humidifier in the baby's room, like a cool mist humidifier. But yes, definitely under two months, it's just a nice idea just to have them checked out. Now, if they're older and, you know, older than two months, obviously there's a cold going around the family, even if there's not. Parents discretion if they want to take their baby in, but you're watching for hydration? Are they peeing? Do they have any fever that's persistent? Definitely have the doctor know. But remedies from the two month to one year, saline, saline, saline in the Mm -hmm. nose. So Mm -hmm. Little Remedies is a brand. There's so many brands. I don't care. It's just, it helps loosen up that mucus in the nose. And Mm -hmm. babies at that age are still what we call obligate nose breathers, meaning they have not really learned how to breathe through their nose and their mouth. Like, so Mm -hmm. if you stick a bottle in their mouth and they're stuffy, they're going to kind of get a little agitated because they're like, whoa, 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 I'm stuffed up in the nose. Mm -hmm. I have something in my mouth. I can't can't, breathe. Like they can breathe, but they're they're just kind of confused. So what I usually advise is in terms of saline, saline is usually nice to do before feeding. So whether you're breastfed baby or formula feeding, before the feeding definitely is a good idea. And then that's really the big thing. You can do it more than that, but what you're doing is you're just trying to help them be more comfortable so that you can maximize the feeding sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, now that being said, they may not take as much as they normally do, right? Like right. if they're doing, I'm going to use example of like a formula fed baby. If they're doing six ounces when they're sick, they may do three, four, but you use every opportunity you can to offer, you know, so let's do saline and let's offer the formula or breastfeeding. Right. So under one, you know, over two months, you're doing saline in the nose. We generally speaking, most general pediatricians love humidifiers, cool mist humidifiers. Now, that being said, you have to make sure that you clean the filters out, right? Very important. I, I, like, <laughs> I like cool mist humidifier. Actually, literally, my husband just walked in with our packages and I ordered one. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, humidifiers are really great for many reasons, but parents don't, sometimes they feel it doesn't do anything, but Imagine like when you're very dry and you have a cough, that cough trigger is going to feel more prominent when you have a dry, dry mucous membranes, Mm -hmm. when you're moist, when you're drinking water as an adult or hydrated as a baby with formula and breast milk, everything's more moist. You're less likely to have the annoying cough trigger. So Mm -hmm. humidifiers just help moisten up the air and moisten up the nasal passages. 
So they're not as bothered. Now, it doesn't mean the cough's going to go away. It just means it's symptomatic management. If a family feels it's not doing anything, they can stop, but it can help with the symptoms. So nasal saline humidifier in, you know, if the baby's super coughing and waking up, picking up the baby, doing steam showers, like turning on the Mm -hmm. hot water in the bathroom and just standing in there to just help loosen things up. It's kind of like if we get a cold and take a hot shower, Mm -hmm. that's the best thing. But the reality is under that really for any age, as we know, there's not a lot of remedies for cough and cold. You're really just doing the supportive remedies to manage them and help them feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Now in some situations, obviously if the parent's concerned of wheezing, you know, (gasps) right. Then of course they have to see, do they need a nebulizer from their pediatrician? Is it like a wheezing asthma situation? Totally different story. And I always describe a parent will know when their child's in distress, even Mm -hmm. if they've never had any experience with it. They will Mm -hmm. see that labored breathing and they'll be like, nope, I don't like this. I'm going to go get this this child checked out. But of course they want to do that. Now, over the counter, there is Zarbies. I'm sure you've heard of Zarbies. Mm -hmm. Zarbies is a, um, it's actually, the company was created by a pediatrician. Because it's created by a pediatrician, I'm not saying that it's always the best thing, but I trust it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but they have a gave-based cough syrup for over two months of age, um, mm. up until one. So it's not honey, so it's safe. You have to make sure it says Zarbi's baby on it. It mm-hmm. cannot say the regular one. It has to say baby. And the packaging should say over, I think it's over two months. It's an option now. Whether it actually does anything, we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. It's not It's not like they do all these research trials to show that it's effective, but it's something to try. Personally, though, I like the more saline humidifier, keeping them as hydrated as possible with breastfeeding and formula, understanding that the appetite is going to go down. Yeah. And if they're a food baby, like if they're over six months and eating solids, they're not going to want to eat a lot when they're sick, right? And yeah, because so we don't want to eat exactly. when we're sick. Same thing. Exactly. And I, that's the number one thing. They're like, but he's not eating. She's not eating. I'm like, when you're sick, you do not want to eat a steak dinner. Yeah. It's not in our priority to eat. It's like yeah. hydration though is so key. Like yeah. you can go days, you can go weeks without eating, but you cannot go days without drinking. You need to have right. fluids. So whether it's a formula fed, breastfed baby, or if it's an older kid who gets water, milk, whatever, it's yeah. really important that they stay hydrated. Yeah. And then over one, honey is the best. And honey over one is safe to give. I always tea. forget about, I was just sorry to interrupt you. I always forget about honey. I was like, yeah. I, but I do like elderberry with Walter and we like that. But I always forget that honey is like, because I use honey when I get a cold yeah. and cough, but I always like forget it to give it to him because I think that got ingrained in me so much that like, don't give your kid honey when, Under they're, one. when yes. they're a baby. Don't give it. Yeah. And so like now we just don't even do honey ever. But yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought up honey. <laughs> yeah. Honey is like one of the reason why honey is so good. And I like to explain this so people understand we're not just telling you to do it. Just, to yeah, do it. it's literally a reason. Yeah. Um, honey is like obviously nature made. I yeah. you can do raw honey after the age of one. So I I get mine from a farmer's market. They grow the, the bees in like the Key West down in Florida. Cool. Um, amazing. And raw honey, it has antiviral, antibacterial properties. It's thick. It coats the throat. So it helps with that sort of all the cough triggers that go down in our throat. It helps with that. You can mix it in warm water or you can give it to the child directly, half a teaspoon to a teaspoon every night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's definitely safe after the age of one and it really can help soothe the throat. And because it's like an antiviral and has antimicrobial properties, it can help you feel better faster. You yeah. know, it can help the illness. That's over one. My favorite remedy, which I don't even know if you saw it on my Instagram, but my favorite remedy, which I actually talked to a lot of my families about is golden milk. So golden oh, milk is um, tell me about this. Yeah, I haven't so heard of this. Golden milk. Golden milk is a 
it's actually an Indian Asian based drink that's mm. good for so turmeric. You know what turmeric is? Turmeric yeah, yeah. is like a yellow powder. Yeah. So golden milk, it contains there's many recipes. My recipe usually is either whole milk or regular milk if a family drinks dairy. If they don't drink dairy, they can use coconut milk, almond milk, any plant-based alternative. And you warm it up. It doesn't have to be too hot because it's a kid, but yeah. you warm it up and then um, you add any of the following ingredients, whatever the family would like to do or they think their child will be amenable to. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I have a lot of kids who love it, even though it might be like, wow, they like that taste. So turmeric is a powder. You can do the powdered version or fresh browned turmeric. I don't obviously recommend turmeric supplements, like the pills, obviously, yeah. too much. But the like, you're just putting a little bit, like enough to make the milk yellow, like yeah. almost like a quarter of a teaspoon. And then you also can add black pepper, cayenne pepper if it's an older kid and they like spice and a lot of my older kids love it so Mm -hmm. like a pinch of cayenne and honey and you warm up the milk you warm up the milk and then add those ingredients after and why it's such a good drink and people can read about it when you're sick the benefits of turmeric and cayenne and black pepper when you add them all together it's an anti-inflammatory antiviral and when you're sick with a cold you have inflammation And all of these help with the inflammation that causes us to get mucus production. So over the age of one, the reason why I would wait till one is that you're using aromatic spices and you're using honey. I have some like parents who have 15 month olds who literally their kids, when they get sick now, they're like, mama, like yellow milk, right? Like they like (laughs) the milk because it's so, I'm not saying that it's going to make you better the next day, but it can nip this in the bud faster. This is actually what I take when I'm sick in pregnancy. Like, Mm. and even before pregnancy, I don't take, Personally, I don't like a lot of meds. I've never liked to take a lot Same. of meds. Yeah. Um, but I, I take a little bit. I do it every, you know, when I'm sick every night, uh, just a pinch of turmeric, cayenne pepper, black pepper after warming up the milk. And it's like a nice, it tastes almost like a fall pumpkin spice uh, beverage, like very aromatic. It. It's called golden milk. And, you know, your listeners can read about the benefits of it. In children, the best safe way to make it is, you know, warm milk, a pinch of everything. You're not overdoing it. I don't, like I said earlier, and I have to reiterate, never use turmeric supplements because it's just yeah. too much. But yeah. doing it as a seasoning is what we do in our foods in Indian culture too, right? And it's mm-hmm. perfectly safe. And obviously I find so much benefit of it that I'm such a big believer that it really does help. The first moment I'm feeling a sore throat coming on, my husband knows that I'm not feeling good. He's like, oh, she's whipped out the turmeric. He's like, I'm ready. I drink that and I actually truly feel better in a few days. Like, That's so cool. You know, when I actually am sick, sick, like it really does help to like help with all the cough and congestion, the inflammation that is so annoying. You know, I love it. But I love a it. Fun little home remedy. Yeah, yeah I'm no, okay, I, I'm okay supporting because it's all spices, you know? Yes, I'm yeah. a big fan of the yeah. home remedies. I yeah. love it, Mona. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and that's funny that you say turmeric. I just used turmeric the other day. I've been doing this, one of those meal box kit delivery things lately. And oh, yeah. so they send you, sometimes they send you like random spices that you've never used. And I've never used turmeric before. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is yellow. <laughs> like this makes oh, my rice yeah. yellow. Like, wow. But it was good. It was tasty. So yeah, I'm definitely interested in that. And I will link that. And then that syrup that you said in the show notes page for you guys to, you know, kind of check out some resources too, if you want to check it out and you're, I'll link your Instagram. Now that you say your Instagram post about the golden milk, I do remember you posting that now that, now that you said that. So I'll link that as well for people to check out. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this was great. We got through, yeah, we got through so many great questions, jam packed episode for you guys. I know you said in the beginning, well, your social media, but can you just remind listeners at the end here where they can find you on social media if you have a website or anything yeah. you know, where they can so, keep in touch. 
Absolutely. And thank you again so much for having me. Yeah. I'm so glad I met you through social media. Yeah. So nice. So nice uh, meeting awesome people. You share so much amazing, amazing education that's helped thank me you. as I'm about to get <laughs> my baby. I'm like, I like saved all your posts. I'm like, okay, yeah. what did she say about this? And so yeah, I love, I love it. But yeah, so um, your followers can follow me at Peds Doc Talk. So it's P-E-D-S. D-O-C-T-A-L-K, Peds.talk. I actually am working on a website. So hopefully in the next couple months, faster if I'm able to get it done. Because I would love to have just a more general place to put all this stuff up. Um, But yeah, so right now though, it's the Instagram. And then once I add the website, that'll be on my Instagram as well. Awesome. Well, I'll link your Instagram. And then once you get your website out, we can absolutely put that on the show notes page for people to check it out. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Mona, again, for joining me. This was such a great episode. And I think we have helped answer a lot of these common questions for moms. So thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. (laughs) You too. Bye. Bye. All right. As well, if you want podcast updates, again, that is at mommylabornurse.podcast. As always, you guys know that I also have a website where I have tons of articles all about pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, newborn stuff, and more at www.mommylabornurse.com. I want to hear more from you on how much you love this episode of the podcast or how you think I can improve. So leave me a comment on one of my pictures, send me a DM, or send me an email with all the love. All right, guys, I will see you same time, same place next week.